as of Thursday, any cogent, terminally ill adult living along the entire Pacific coast of the United States, from the Canadian border to the Mexican, can legally ask for lethal drugs to take his or her own life. California now joins Oregon and Washington, along with Vermont and Montana, in a right to die. The versions and restrictions, like the names, vary for each state. It wasn't California voters who passed the End of Life Option Act, but the state legislature. Brittany Maynard, a young California woman with terminal brain cancer, made a video appeal in support of the bill. The laws in California and 45 other states must change to prevent prolonged involuntary suffering for all terminally ill Americans. As elected officials, you have the power to make this happen. Please take action. She said she was forced to move to Oregon to die legally with a doctor's assistance. California's law is modeled on Oregon's, which has been on the books for nearly 20 years. And Dr. Katrina Hedberg, the state health officer and epidemiologist at the Public Health Division, explains how it's worked there. Let's look first at the nature of the law, what Oregon's law requires of patients and of physicians. It laid out several sort of categories or criteria for patients who would be qualified or eligible to participate. They had to be an adult, so 18 years of age or older, a resident of the state of Oregon, and be diagnosed with a terminal illness with six months or less to live. Uh, now, they also had to be able to make and communicate a health care decision. So the process is that they could make a request of a physician, and there had to be a second physician or a consulting physician who agreed um, with the diagnosis and the prognosis, as well as uh, the patient's ability to make and communicate health care decisions. So the, the patient needed to have two oral requests separated by 15 days, as well as a written request. And the written request had to be witnessed by two people, one of whom could not have a vested interest, so a family member who was going to inherit, for example. Uh, and so those are the strict criteria that were laid out in the statute itself. What sort of diseases are you finding in the patients who decide to take their own lives in taking advantage of the Oregon law? So because the law specifies that a patient has to have six months or less to live, the majority of patients are those who have a disease that has a sort of a downward spiral, if you will, or, or a, a prognosis that's relatively short. And the diseases that, um, that fall into this category are often cancers as well as diseases like um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease, as well as HIV infection. So um, those have been the diseases that we have seen um, for folks who have participated in this act. What is the number of patients who've taken advantage of this law in the 19 years that it's been in effect? Yes, yeah, so since the beginning, there have been a total of 991 patients who have taken the medications in order to hasten death. Now, it turns out that there's a larger number of patients who've actually requested a prescription. Um, that's over 1,000, or it's around 1,200. So it looks like about, of all the patients who get a prescription, somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of them take the medication. There are a number of patients who get the prescription but end up not taking the medication but die of their underlying disease. Uh, why is that? Has anyone looked at that reason? 
when a patient is diagnosed with um, with the disease, a life-threatening disease, obviously there are a number of conversations that go into it, including what are the different treatment options, et cetera. At a certain point, the, the conversation may move on to it's no longer, there's no cure, or it's not treatable, and what are the different aspects or, or elements that are available, including things like being on palliative care or on hospice care. Now, our reporting system, we uh, request physicians that they're required to report to us all of the steps up to the point a prescription is written, and then they report to us after the patient died um, through the death certificate. We then ask physicians, did the patient take the medication or not? But the act does not specify what needs to happen between the time a prescription is written and the time of death. I do know that, again, through anecdotes, that for some people, the physicians say the patient wants to be able to have choices and options. They want to know that it's there. I would have expected people over 85 who are facing fatal illnesses to be represented in greater numbers among those who take advantage of this law. Instead, there's a much larger percentage in, for example, the 18 to 64 age group, and that is certainly a big age range. Yeah, so I think a couple of things happen as people get older. One, certainly, is we know that uh, it's not true for everybody, but with a lot of people, they start to have some cognitive impairment, uh, dementia, even if it's not full-blown Alzheimer's, but they may have um, increasing difficulty in making healthcare decisions. So I think that's one thing, um, that we see higher rates of participation in younger, although the average age is 70. So that's, you know, that's relatively old. Um, but the rates of participation are higher and younger. Um, another is I do think that older people um, may just the social norms, what they grew up with, may not be as likely to choose this. They may also view more that sort of um, that their physician should make the choices for them, etc. So I do think that there's something about a changing social norm that might allow younger people um, have more freedom, if you will, or, or feel more like they could ask this of their health care providers than older people. What are some of the, the demographics of the people who do take advantage of this law in terms of race, education, and income? You noticed some big differences. So what we've seen in our uh, in our data is both folks with a higher educational level, at least half, almost half of participants have had a college graduate degree or higher. Hmm. They've graduated college, so only a fraction of them um, had uh, less than a high school degree, and it was about uh, 25 or 26 percent um, were high school grants. So 75 percent had had some college and or graduate. Uh, graduate degree. We've also seen that the vast majority, 97% of people who participated have been white. Oregon is a very, uh, it's a pretty homogeneous state, but we actually are becoming more diverse, more similar to California. Um, and our state right now, I think, is about 80% white, and we have maybe 15% Hispanic or Latino, and then we have 3% African American or American Indian. And basically, the vast, vast majority of people who've participated are either white or Asian, and we've seen very few uh, Latinos, Hispanics, and or African American or American Indians participate. Has there been any gender difference? No, actually not. Uh, it's pretty much 50-50 participation between the two sexes. What often gets raised as a concern is that people will choose to die because they don't want to be a burden to their families. 
You wrote several years ago about worrisome trends, about inadequate pain control, and pain management as one of the reasons, and that concern about becoming a burden on caregivers. One, one thing is that the law itself writes uh, what all the steps up to the point of prescription is written, but really does not address what happens between the writing of the prescription and the time of death. And so a number of the concerns um, that, get, uh, that arise do have to do with what happens during that time period. Um, are patients being adequately uh, cared for? Do they have access to adequate pain um, control? We know that there are very good pain medications out there, but there are side effects with them as well. And so when we had interviewed some families early on, this was a number of years ago, uh, the family member reports that, yes, the, you know, pain can be controlled, but at the expense, if you will, or the cost that the patient is kind of out of it or they're woozy or they're sleeping all the time, that having their pain controlled also meant that they lost the ability to participate in activities that made their life meaningful. When people express concerns about being a burden, um, I understand that when we had interviewed family members, however, many of them basically said, but you're not a burden, you know, you're our loved one and we want to take care of you. And I sort of use the analogy here is that when my kids were young, they're now uh, both in their 20s, but when they were young, if you'd ask me, well, is having a, a child or a, a baby, a newborn, a burden, you'd say, well, yeah, they keep me up all night, but I wouldn't change it for the world. Hmm. So, you know, just because someone, the, the asking the person themselves, they might be worried about it. But when we asked family members, in fact, they really did want to take care of their loved ones throughout uh, the dying process. So part of this, of course, is what is perceived by the patient themselves compared to what the family members are actually experiencing. And at least when we interviewed the family members, it was just the opposite. They really did not want their loved ones uh, to die, um, to die at all, uh, much less die a hastened death. You write in one of your papers about uh, even the terminology it was a matter of dispute because of the connotations. The proponents prefer the term physician aid in dying or hasten death or death with dignity, and opponents prefer the term physician assisted suicide. Have you seen any changes, any agreement in any one set of terms or words that people now tend to use? The statute itself um, basically says that this should not be considered suicide. And so we use the term death with dignity because that is what the statute was titled and that's what it's called. But you're right the, um, uh, that the semantics around hasten death or aid in dying um, are different from the opponents who continue to use the term physician-assisted suicide. You may not want to answer this, and I understand perfectly, but the question is whether this law has had an effect in your family of discussions of this nature about advanced directives or other issues that may not have come up before? So I don't mind actually answering that question because my parents are uh, are old. <laughs> my, uh, my mother is 90 and my father is 98. And luckily, they both are completely cognitively intact. They are very active. They live independently. They live at home. And they're very intellectually engaged. Um, but it, we have actually not had any conversations specific to this act, although they have asked me about my role. And they, they certainly know about that. And I you know, have been quoted in the media a fair amount. But 
But they do want to have discussions about advanced directives and what does that mean. And they do want discussions about should EMTs come to the house or what kind of things, how you know, aggressive should care be, since neither of them has a terminal illness at this point. So we have had some of those conversations. Luckily, we have many other things to talk about as well. So, <laughs> <I'm glad to laughs> so it's not that. a major conversation at Thanksgiving, but it certainly is there because I, I do want to honor their wishes um, because clearly my father being 96, um, I hope he lives another 20 years, but then he will absolutely be the oldest person on earth. <laughs> and why not? <laughs> exactly. Well, Dr. Katrina Hedberg, thank you so very much for your time and for your insights. Yes, you're very welcome. My pleasure. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's engineered and edited by Todd G. Levin. The Brittany Maynard video is from Compassion Choices, and the music by Eric Satie is performed by Daniel Varsano. I am Pat Morrison.